So good to be here and be able to worship Jesus with you all. Would you open your Bibles to Mark 15, continuing through the book of Mark. What a joyful journey this has been, getting to know Jesus better than we did. Mark 15 has a very sobering passage, but incredibly instructive for us as we think about how we view reality, really, how we view life, what really matters, and once again, how different God's ways are than our ways. Uh, Mark 15, we'll start reading at verse 1 and hear about this greatest work of all, the work of Christ for us here in Mark. Let's pray as we go to the Word. Lord, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the light and life and truth, for the bread, for the living water we find as we find the one who is the Word here. And Lord, we pray that as we read this account of Jesus suffering in our place, that we would understand the gospel more deeply than we ever have before. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Mark 15, let's read it together. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consolation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. I bet it took a lot to amaze Pilate, but here we have an amazed Pilate. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews. And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, He delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, 
And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Well, uh, a most sobering passage and uh, one with which we are familiar in our culture. There have been so many images of Jesus suffering and death. Uh, You see crucifixes. You've seen so many images of this. And so in one sense, we can be very, very used to this. But when we step back and look at it with fresh eyes, it's a very disturbing picture. It's a very sobering picture. It's one that I pray we can look at indeed with fresh eyes. What I want us to notice as as we look at this is Jesus at the center of this, but other ways of viewing reality competing with focusing on Jesus. Alistair Begg, in a sermon he preached, said these other perspectives are Rome, religion, the rabble, the robber, and the redeemer. These are different ways. Uh, My effort is politics, popular opinion, piety, and rebellion. Sorry, I couldn't stay with the alliteration for very long. I just couldn't find a P word that wasn't forced. So, um, So politics piety or religion, popular opinion, and rebellion are are these different ways of viewing reality. Now, Jesus is how we need to view reality. We need to see Jesus at the heart of this and understand everything that's happening in light of who he is and what's happening to him here. But let's first consider these other ways of considering life and seeking solutions and framing existence and earning what we think we need to earn and arranging things like we need to. And the first one that we need to consider is Rome or politics. This whole passage is framed in this context of Roman rule. And the Romans, I'm sure if you ask them, would have said that they thought the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome as Rome was taking over the world, was a good thing. It's very seldom you find someone who wakes up in the morning and says, today I want to be evil. Today I want to be an oppressor. Today I want to be bad. I'm convinced that the vast majority of humans, no matter what they're doing, even if it's great evil, have convinced themselves that what they're doing is ultimately good. Even if the means may be questionable, I'm sure they've rationalized, excused, uh, come to an understanding of their life in a way that sees it as good. Very seldom do you meet people who are just resigned to evil in an explicit conscious way. But the, the Roman way of viewing things is an important thing to consider here. They had taken over this Jewish context here in Jerusalem, and they had a brilliant way of ruling. They pretty much let people do things the way they always had, unless it violated in some way the Roman rule that they had brought about. 
if it questioned the authority of the emperor or Roman dominance, then it was a problem. Otherwise, go about your business, do your thing. We're not concerned about converting you to anything but recognizing supreme authority of Rome. And so there's a very political context here. Um, And it's not just the Roman politics we need to think about. It's the politics of the religious leaders, this council, the whole council had arrived. This is a big deal. Early in the morning, they are taking this situation of Jesus very seriously. And why is that? It's because Jesus was messing with the politics of their lives, really. The religious leaders like the authority, like the structure. That's what politics is. It's a way of managing human relations and societies. Right? And they it wouldn't have chosen Roman oppression, but given the context, they had actually attained a level of success in this context. They were a bit of a puppet in, in, the, in Roman control, but they liked the role they had within that context of importance and prestige and power and authority. And so you've got Pilate representing Roman politics and you've got the politics of the religious leaders. You've got a very political environment, which we do too. Politics is a powerful thing, isn't it? Uh, Ways we commit to govern humans and human relations and societies enlist a loyalty from us, a commitment from us. And this has been true throughout all of human history. Politics, it's fascinating. We really sell out to political ways of thinking. Now, that's not a bad thing necessarily. It can be a very bad thing. We have four children from Asian contexts, and so much of what they've suffered when they were orphans is the result of political understandings of human relations and things like one-child policies that come from that and a a view of God and a communist context and the effects that has on little kids and people in general. Remember when we were in China in February and and January of this last year getting our fourth child? Uh, I went uh, to adopt our our son primarily with with Donna and the kids, but but I went as a tourist, as a learner, someone who wanted to understand this culture (laughs) that my kids come out of. And it was fascinating to be in this context that has been so dominated by communism, which is a worldview. It's a way of thinking about humans and human relations and and God or the anti-God view of communism and to see the effects on the culture and to see the level of commitment people had to that system was fascinating. And I'm not talking about sort of people who are so embedded in the culture that they, they just don't know any better. I'm talking about people I'd meet in China from, from contexts where they had studied at the University of Chicago for years and then gone back. But the level of commitment was amazing to me to a communist way of thinking. Even if deep down there there were reservations, it was very hard to see any on the surface. And I would have conversations and ask people about Chairman Mao because he dominates the culture, this massive portrait of Chairman Mao in Red Square, right? Where you can go see his body that's been uh, entombed and enshrined in a clear glass case where you can see his body in, in, in a almost worshipful way. And that's what's important to realize is that that even anti-theistic views of 
the world can be very religious and worshipful and have even a messianic ideal going on. And I would talk to people who are highly educated and spent time in the West, and I, I was wondering if I would ever hear anything negative about Chairman Mao. And I even tried to sort of encourage it a little <laughs> bit in a subtle way, you know, and say things like, so tell me what you think of Mao. Oh, he's a great leader. I know, but what'd you think of him? Any, any evaluation of his leadership? Oh, he was our great leader. I know, but, well, he's like your George Washington. Well, a little different, I would think. And, and, but it was amazing that, that even though people knew the horrors of history, the murderous horrors of history that Mao had perpetrated, there was a commitment to the system. There was a way of thinking in the political realm that they wouldn't budge from. And the whole time I was so aware that as you could go see Mao, that you weren't even sure it was the actual body of Chairman Mao because they did a poor job in the preservation efforts initially. And, and you actually uh, might be seeing a substitute body that's not the real one because he's decomposing and they're frantically trying to keep that from happening. And I, I was just overwhelmed by the fact that the savior of the world, Jesus Christ, has a body that will never decompose. He's risen from the dead. You don't go see his dead body in Red Square or anywhere else in Jerusalem. We serve a risen savior. There's a drastic difference between this massive system of thinking of communism and Jesus. Massive difference. And it doesn't even matter really if it's a bad system like I think communism is or a good one like I think the United States has basically with good understanding of human nature because even those good systems are filled with sinners. If you think politics is the answer, even good politics, you're wrong. <laughs> you're just wrong. Good governing can never solve our greatest problems. I'm already weary of the presidential election, and we're not even a year out yet. <laughs> Oh, here we are thinking, uh, and, and we need to be good citizens, right? We need to be good stewards of the amazing privilege of citizenship that we have. But we need to recognize how drastically frail and insufficient even the best political systems are. So we see the politics here not solving the problem. Uh, Communism couldn't silence Christ. Mao is falling apart and Jesus is ruling. And even good leaders and governments are sinful and never provide the ultimate answer, ever. And one day, the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdoms of our Lord. It's, it's his, it's all his, and he's in the process of taking it back. And so the first false uh, God, the false source of worship is politics. The second is religion. 
You've got the religious leaders maintaining their religious piety as what they are clinging to. Paul is a great example of what we're talking about. The religious leaders prided themselves on being the religious leaders and the religious examples and the ones who were epitomizing piety, religious piety. Paul recognized, though, didn't he, if you remember his, his writings, that all of his righteous works were just filthy rags. They were a source to fuel his self-righteousness that prevented him from running to God's grace. And so there can be a deadly, insidious uh, allure of religion, mere religion, apart from the grace of God and the gospel of Christ, that can be more deadly than even blatant sin. We've got to be so careful about this, especially those of us who are inclined, as we all apparently are, to gather on a Sunday morning in a worship context. You're here for some reason. Even if you're here to mock, you still value it enough to mock, right? Um, so, so we're here and we recognize the importance of doing things religiously, and we should. But what can so easily happen is religion can become our God, our Self-righteousness can become our God. And that's what these religious leaders, again, are motivated by. I talked to a woman a couple of weeks ago when I was back in Connecticut. She's been a family friend for over 70 years of our family. She's a good friend of my mother's. And she was raised in a very strict religious household with an incredibly, tragically demanding mother. And, to, and, and she actually wanted to get together with me because she fears her death and she fears judgment day. And I, I was talking to her and trying to help her understand the gospel because she said in our conversation, she said, oh, I went to mass last week and the, the, the priest had such a strong accent that I couldn't understand a word he said. And the whole time I was sitting there thinking, oh boy, I hope I still get credit for going to church today because I'm not understanding any of this. And to think of coming to church is getting credit from God, getting, getting some sort of righteous check mark. It's so embedded in her way of thinking. And I said to her, oh, I know your mother was exacting and demanding, but you need to know that God is extravagantly gracious and you can never earn anything from God. You know, as I was preparing for this sermon, I was um, just hours aware of Jack having gone home to be with Jesus and uh, realizing how... Karen and the Tuckers are just grieving over this. And, and so in my grief, I was also rejoicing as I was thinking about how well Jack and Karen understand the insufficiency of anything we do to earn anything before God. And I thought of your, your testimonies, Karen, and how you and Jack came to Christ uh, reading Scripture. And how Jack came to hear Jesus say in the Gospel of John uh, that I am the bread of life. And anyone who comes to me will never hunger. That was the scripture that really hit him. And then he gave the Bible to Karen and asked her to read it and told her not to read Romans yet. And she rushed to Romans, assuming 
assuming that was going to have something to defend her, her dutiful religious mentality, right? That Jack was in the process of converting to out of Mormonism, another uh, works righteousness way of thinking. And as she's reading the book of Romans, she gets to chapter three and reads, we are not justified by works of the law, but by faith. Oh, and I thought the glory of being able at 3 a.m. the Tuesday I was studying, knowing that Jack is in the presence of God as a child who's forgiven, not because of one thing that he had done. And that Karen, you could rest in that assurance that we're not resting in any one shred of Jack's self-righteousness. Oh, and he gloriously got this. That, that's what marked him. I remember having a conversation with Jack just a few weeks ago about discipleship and how real it was to him. And at the heart of it all was a recognition that Jesus had done it all, that, that he doesn't add anything to the equation. If you're depending on religion, if you're depending on your works, if you're depending on your piety, you're missing the gospel. Sometimes I wonder what's done more damage, Vegas or the Vatican. (laughs) Because there can be a way of thinking that is all about what we do all about what we contribute, all about what we add to it, all about what someone does for us who's not Jesus. And it it can be so deadly to our thinking because it can look so good and there can be so much that's right about it. And we think, well, at least I'm not living this licentious, sinful lifestyle, but we're not going to the grace of God. We're going to our own works and our own righteousness. And these religious leaders, these are the kinds that Jesus took aim at more than anybody else. It it wasn't the, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the lepers that Jesus really came down on. It was leaders who got the religious thing down perfectly and missed the whole point. So politics won't do it. Piety won't do it. And you know what else won't do it? Popular opinion. And man, do we need to hear this one. We live in a democracy and we can start to think that the crowd gets it right, that the majority wins, that the majority means truth, that if we take a vote and it's 51%, well, that's now what's true. And we can see this in this. Pilate makes his decision not on what's right, but by what the crowd thinks. Did you see what verse 15 says? So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, and we see over and over again throughout the Gospels, the religious leaders managing things and navigating things to make the crowds happy and to keep the crowds quiet. And, And there's an idea that the masses rule, that the majority rules, and the majority is never right just because they're the majority, ever. We've got to get this. It's hard for us. And what's more alluring to us than popularity? Oh, we want to be popular. I'm convinced just about every high school kid out there would far rather be voted most popular more than most likely to succeed. Because popularity is success. 
to be liked, to be looked as on in a positive way, to, to be having the, the majority think we're just great is so important to us. And in some ways, we never leave behind that junior high desperate desire to be liked. But we've got to realize that the majority liking us or anything is never the determiner of truth. Ian Rice is a very successful, brilliant author of novels about vampires. (laughs) Um, had a conversion experience a few years ago, and it came about because she uh, was going to write a vampire book, and Jesus was going to be the central figure, and so she said, I better learn something about Jesus, and so she went to the normal sources someone raised in her atheist, liberal context would, and she said she was stunned by how prejudiced they were toward what the Bible actually said. She said she was astounded by how they were just preconceived ideas on top of preconceived ideas on top of more assumptions, not based in any data, historically or biblically. She was stunned by what bad scholarship the atheist, liberal-minded people that she was a part of were putting forth. And she said, I realized something else. They just don't like the Jesus of the Bible. They actually despise him and are doing everything they can to get rid of him. She said, I've never seen this in any other area of study. She said, Elizabethan scholars don't do it because they hate Queen Elizabeth. Uh, They they don't go about their, their quest to undermine all the credibility of the one they're studying. She said, even if people admit negatives about the one they're studying, they tend to do it because of a love, not a hatred. And she said, I noticed a hatred for the Jesus of the Bible in these scholars. And it led her to a conversion experience where she realized that the, the picture these liberal scholars were putting forth weren't, wasn't a satisfying or biblical picture. And now I've spent a lot of my life in the world of academia, and the trump card in that world is this sentence. Well, you do know that the majority of scholars hold to this. You do know that the majority of scholars don't believe that. And you should see the context of academia when someone says something like that. There's this frantic desire for prestige and respect. And so you'll do anything. To not be considered a Neanderthal who's, who's not with the majority of modern scholars. And it's amazing how quickly we can start to compromise what the Bible clearly says. It's amazing. I, it seems like every Christian I hear interviewed these days has something like this said to them in the midst of the interview. You do know you are against the tide of history with what you believe. D- do you realize that the culture's shifted now? Do you realize that the tidal wave of thinking is in the opposite direction of what you believe? What are you going to do about that? What's it? They'll be back. Yeah. I think we should just say, just be faithful to what God clearly says and be loving and faithful and committed to truth. It's, it's amazing how polls, it's like we're addicted to polls every day. 
the number one story is what the polls say today about Trump or Hillary or whomever now. Clinging to polls as if they determine anything ultimately true. It really is astounding how important these things are to us. And, and what else? What are other things we could cling to? Well, Barabbas is a great example of the fourth one. We've got the insufficiency of politics, the insufficiency of piety, the insufficiency of polls or popularity, and the insufficiency of rebellion. Uh, Barabbas is the one they want. Do you realize what just happened in this story? He offers them Barabbas, Pilate does. He offers them Jesus to be set free, realizing that, well, the people must recognize that the leaders are doing all of this because of envy, which is true. Pilate's seeing truth, but he won't deny what the crowd wants. He's going along with popular opinion, and he says, well, well you want Jesus, right? And they said, no, we want Barabbas. We want the terrorist. You do realize what happened in this story. They said, give us the terrorist. That's what Barabbas says. He's a murderer. He's a thief. He's a terrorist. He's part of the insurrection. He is the one who is taking matters into his own hands in a sinful, evil, rebellious way to undermine the Roman authorities. And that's the one they want. They want the terrorist, not Jesus. They want this murderer instead of Jesus, and they like his method. They like this take matters into your own hands, make things right yourself mentality. And please know that, that we need to run to God for the solutions, not take matters into our own hands, not undermine in ways and take, and, and take things in a sinful, rebellious way into our own hands. Barabbas in his ways is not the solution. These are all insufficient. The only solution is the Redeemer, is Christ. That's what we find here. And we need to focus on Jesus in the midst of all these competing sources of worship, objects of worship, in the midst of all of these competing ways to find solutions and answers and alleviate human ills. No, Jesus is the only way. He's the solution. And what do we find out about Jesus here? Three very important character traits. Three very important character traits. Derek Thomas, a brilliant preacher. Somebody in, at La Mirada last week thought I said Eric Thomas, a brilliant preacher. <laughs> Uh, Derek Thomas, a brilliant preacher. They thought, well, he's kind of full of himself. Um, um, no, Derek Thomas, he brilliantly organizes in, in a sermon on this passage these character traits of Jesus. And the first one is the silent lamb. The silent lamb. It's so bizarre when you think of it that Jesus is suffering and dying and being punished and mocked, and yet he's a silent lamb. He's got a humble confidence that amazes Pilate. You see what it says there in verse 5? Jesus made no further answer. He says, aren't you going to give an answer? Can you just see Pilate in his desperation? Now, Jesus has been very clear in the past about who he is. He's asked by the chief priest, are you the Christ? And he says, I am, and you'll see me coming in the clouds. So he's been clear about this. But Jesus is at the point now where he is committed to God's sovereign good plan being worked out in his suffering and death. And he's not interested in getting out of it. He won that battle in the garden. And now he is faced with his accusers and he says nothing. 
And Pilate can't handle this. He says, come on, I see the wrongness of this. I think you should be set free. Help me out here. Work with me, Jesus. You know, refute your critics. You've got all the evidence you need. They've got no good evidence. Come on, help me out here. I want to set you free. And Jesus says nothing. And Pilate says, aren't you going to say something? And he's silent. He's silent because he is committed to God's sovereign plan and to the fulfillment of prophecy. He realizes that this is all happening because God has set this plan into motion. And as these human beings are responsible for their sinful murder of this innocent man, we realize there's something bigger going on. And it's the sovereign good plan of God. That that word we see twice in this passage, you see in verse 1, the very end, Uh, And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Literally handed him over. Uh, Look at verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This idea of being handed over or delivered up is a very important idea because in the midst of these human beings handing him over, uh, setting him toward this person, taking their hands off him and handing him over to Pilate, Pilate handing him over to the Roman guards to to beat him and crucify him. There's this handing over going on. But we've got to step back and realize that this human handing over, delivering up, has behind it a divine sovereign hand that's handing him over. This this very phrase, delivered up or handed him over, occurs in key passages throughout the Old Testament that prophesy this event, that Jesus is handed over to his accusers. This, This suffering, silent lamb is handed over in this way. He's delivered up. And then when the... The apostles start preaching the gospel. We see the same imagery. Now, what's important to realize here is Jesus is what the Bible's about. And the Old Testament prepares us for him, foreshadows him. And then we get to the gospels and they reveal him. And then we get to the acts of the apostles, this, this establishment of the church. And we see this revelation of God in Christ proclaimed. And then we get to the letters of the New Testament and we get this proclamation of the revealed Christ explained. So it's prepared, revealed, proclaimed, explained. That's why you need the whole Bible. Desperately need the whole Bible. One of the great concerns of the day is people want to chop up the Bible and have what's called a Bible within a Bible, a canon within a canon. You hear people refer to themselves as red letter Christians. I'm all about Jesus. Sounds so right. I'm all about Jesus. I'm about the red letters. Everything needs to be weighed in light of those. And that sounds right on the surface. But what it really means is I don't have to pay attention to parts of the Bible really that I just don't like. But you've got to get the whole thing. The explained revelation in the letters are very important. And what you get is this proclamation of Christ in Acts where Peter says in Acts 2 this, this Jesus delivered up, there it is, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Paul in the epistles explaining what's happening in Christ in Romans 4 says, It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Do you see, it's that mentality of 
God delivering up Jesus, sending his son, the son joyfully submitting to the will of that father that's behind all these human handing overs. See, that's why Jesus in the garden can say, not my will, but thy will be done. Going to the cross is not just human evil. It's divine sovereign goodness that he rests in, that he trusts in. That's why he can be silent. That's why he can set aside his power, set aside his glory, not demand that it be recognized and worshiped as it had for all of eternity. It's Philippians 2. Although he was in very nature, God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He was able to be the silent servant because he so rested in the sovereignty of God. To be able to give up power Willingly takes great strength. To allow oneself to be made weak takes great power. This is one of the counterintuitive paradoxes of the Christian faith, that, that when you willingly give up power and strength, that requires a great power and strength. And it demonstrates it as well. You know, George Washington was a farmer before he was president. And after the Revolutionary War was won, by the United States, uh, uh, King George's American portrait artist in the midst of painting told him that Washington, after everything was settled, intended to go back to the farm and let go of all of his power he had gained in, in this almost mythical way of leading to independence. And King George said, I don't believe it. No man would give up that power. He said, if George Washington goes back to the farm, he's the greatest man on earth. He realized the allure of power and Jesus gave up his power. He was willingly weak and that took incredible strength because he was resting in God's sovereign goodness. And so he's the silent lamb and he's also the substitute sacrifice. I have no idea what happened to Barabbas. I, I, I'm amazed the Bible never tells us. I wonder if we'll see Barabbas in heaven. He must have known that Jesus took his place. He, he knew this. And as he hears his name being screened by the crowd, he, he might have thought, well, they want me to be crucified like I'm going to be. And then when he realized that Jesus stepped in and took his place in this vivid portrayal of Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice... I, don't, I wonder if he went to the crucifixion because Barabbas deserved to be between those two thieves. He was a thief. He was a murderer. He deserved to die on that cross in the middle. And Jesus was there instead. Substitution is at the very heart of the gospel. He takes our place. He substitute for us. Listen to Isaiah 53. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've everyone turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He's taking our suffering. He's taking our punishment. He's taking our death. Second Corinthians 5, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this substitution includes suffering. So he's the silent lamb and the substitute sacrifice, and he's the suffering servant. It's very important to realize that Jesus didn't just die for us, he suffered for us. He lived for us a life of suffering. He suffered acutely in this scene this morning. He suffers on a cross. He suffered in our place. The very difficult truth of our sin is that the wages of sin deserve death. There's a curse that comes with sin. There's suffering that is deserved because of our sin. This is very hard for us to imagine because we tend to think of sin as only its practical ramifications on us rather than the offense it is against a holy God. And so it's very hard for us to imagine that sin deserves not just consequences or reformation, but punishment. It deserves to be cursed. It deserves to be judged in this way. You ever think about the crown of thorns? Uh, Remember what God says about human existence when he curses us in our rebellion in Genesis 3? That our life will be filled with thorns and thistles. The curse brings a difficulty that is imaged by thorns. And then Jesus has this crown of thorns in our story pressed upon his head. He actually literally bears the thorns and suffers because of them. He suffers in our place. Listen to 1 Peter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. He was cursed so we didn't have to be. We were cursed as fallen, rebellious humans, but Jesus took our curse for us. You know that great blessing that some of you may say over your children as you put them to bed at night? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You know that famous blessing? But do you realize for that blessing to be true toward us, what God needed to say to Christ was, the Lord curse you. The Lord make his face turn from you. See, he was cursed so we could be blessed. And not only was he punished, he bore the shame for us. Now think of this in a shame-based culture like this was, very much unlike us. We're a shameless culture. But please know that when humans rebelled against God and were filled with shame, God never said, oh, there's no grounds for shame. Don't be ashamed. Oh, there's nothing to be ashamed about. No, he provided a covering for their shame, which was right. There's a right shame. There, there's a right awareness of our sin. And Jesus bore our shame for us. He was mocked. He was spit upon because we deserve shame. And he took that shame for us. It wasn't just death. It wasn't just suffering and punishment. It was shame he bore for us. Dying naked on a cross being spit upon, being mocked with these ironic homage displays of, oh, king, and, and worshiping him as they spit on him and beat him. We deserve that. I know it's hard to imagine that our sin deserves that, but before a holy God, it does. Not before any other sinful human, though. See, these guards are so foul because they have no grounds to mock anything. No human being does. 
but God does. We actually find in the Bible God mocking sinful human folly over and over again. But the astounding truth of the gospel is God turns that mockery on himself in the Son. We deserve to be mocked in our sin, but God ultimately doesn't mock us. He turns that mockery toward himself. He took our shame and our humiliation. And because of that, there is no place for unhealthy shame in the Christian life any longer. Jesus didn't come down from the cross. Do you realize how much sense, from a worldly point of view, all of these other ways of thinking make? They make a lot of sense. When they were saying, come down from the cross, you saved others, why can't you save yourself? That makes perfect sense from a human point of view. But in God's economy, it doesn't. Because God takes the suffering, he takes the mockery, he takes the shame to himself so that we can have dignity. This is a most astounding truth. Jesus took our shame and humiliation. He doesn't come down from the cross. He was bound so we could be set free. He was cursed so we could be blessed. He was beaten so we could be healed. He took our shame so we could no longer be ashamed. The shame that was ours, he took to himself. You know, I thought a lot this week and last about this image. You remember when Pilate... Uh, says, all right, he's, he's not guilty. I'm not, I'm not taking responsibility for this innocent man going to the cross. Remember what he does in, in the Gospel of Matthew? It doesn't do it in Mark here. But remember in the Gospel of Matthew, the image that we have here of, of Pilate? Remember, he takes a bowl of water, and in this symbolic gesture, he says, I wash my hands of the blood of this innocent man. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. And I think that's the posture of many, maybe even in this room and in our culture, that, that there's this idea that, well, I'm not going to fully embrace Jesus. I'm not going to stand with Jesus. I'll just wash my hands. I'm not sure. I'm just going to take a passive. I'm, I'm Switzerland, right? I'm just not getting involved here. I'm not going to be some really sold out, you know, crazy religious person. I'll just, I like Jesus. Jesus is just all right with me, said the Doobie Brothers, right? Some Christians love that song. It just makes me cringe. He's, he's not just all right with you. Talk about a pretty tepid attitude. We can't wash our hands of Jesus. But here's the astounding thing. When we don't wash our hands of him, with him, when we turn from our sin and trust him in saving faith, in repentance and saving faith. We are now his. We are now no longer ashamed. We are now forgiven. And what can happen in our lives is we can actually start to be like him, which he calls us to. Discipleship is becoming like Christ. So even when we're mocked, even when we're accused, especially for our faith, we don't have to defend ourselves all the time. We, we don't have to get entitled. I love that, that Laura prayed for forgiveness for a sense of entitlement. Entitlement can kill us, especially in this culture, because we can feel entitled to respect and appreciation, even as Christians. When Jesus said, no, the world hated me, they'll hate you, but love your enemies. So this bowl that can become a resignation to not committing to anything about Jesus can actually become a source of serving people, even people who hate us. And so now we become foot-washing, servant-hearted people who are able to not return evil for evil, 
demand our rights all the time, but incredibly humbly serve people. Even people who want our ill, even people who seek our evil, we can be like Jesus in, in our humble confidence, in our weak strength, in our servant-hearted Christ-like service to others. I remember sitting with Jack over here, he had his oxygen take and he was talking to a homeless man who had come in uh, to eat a meal. It wasn't that long ago, Jack was serving right there and I, I just sat next to him because I wanted to watch him in action. And that man had no idea who Jack was or how educated or experienced or godly he was. He just knew that Jack obviously loved him and was giving him some food and caring for him. What a beautiful example of realizing how much he had been forgiven and then just loving right out of that. Let's not wash our hands of Jesus, but bow before his name in humble, confident trust and start to look like him as a result. Let's, let's spend some time in prayer. Some of you pray for us now as we've pondered Christ. Some of you just um, help us go before the Lord in prayer.